This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track. And this time we've got one from the archive. Back in 2012, the very first year of this program, Off Track, Joel Werner was the host and he went out to meet a bloke who really loves his plants. Take a listen to this. All right, so what's really amazing about this plant is that you can grow up your gene in bacteria and you just literally get a syringe without a needle on it and you take it up into the syringe and then you go to your plant. So this only works in benthamiana, virtually no other plant. And you take a leaf and so let's find a plant like this one and you literally put that against the leaf and you squirt it in and you see how it's just that's not spread everywhere outside and splashed around it's gone inside that leaf and you can do that for the whole leaf and as many leaves as you like and in three days your gene will be expressing and that can be an antibody gene or a vaccine or you can make biochemical pathways so if you want a, a metabolic pathway to make a brand new oil and you want to make it by putting in say eight different enzymes and one might have come from an algae and one from a rat, one from a a dandelion or something. You grow them up, you mix them together and you squirt it in the leaf. And then within a week you can see whether those enzymes have made you your oil that you were predicting that you could make. It's almost like building blocks that you can design a product and you think of the enzymes that are going to make it and you get the genes for those and you just literally squirt them in. I mean, also what's really cool about it is because it's so quick, you don't have to think, if it was really expensive to do, and you're going to plan, oh, this is an eight process step and it's going to cost me $100,000 to make each step, then you're going, to, you're going to think, wow, is this really, do I know that it's going to work? Whereas because it costs you almost nothing to grow these genes up and squirt them in the plant, and then you analyze it at the end, you can have a thousand mistakes to find the one that works, and it doesn't take you very long at all. And then once you've cracked it and you know what you're doing, then you can go and do it in a much more stable way to make your product in a crop or whatever you're going to do. So it's like a scratch pad for it, your for testing, t- uh, testing absolutely, DNA? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's just like computer programming in a way, yeah. You're just putting stuff in and you're saying, does it work? And then if it doesn't work, you tweak it a bit and then you try it again and see if it works. It is amazingly flexible, I think. This is Off Track on RN with me, Joel Werner, and today we're in the greenhouse of Professor Peter Waterhouse. Peter Waterhouse is a star of Australian science. A plant geneticist, Peter spent years working at the CSIRO where his research earned him a number of awards, including the Victor Chang Medal and the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. These days, Peter runs a lab at the University of Sydney's School of Molecular Bioscience and was recently involved in research that decoded the genetic sequence of Nicotiana benthamiana, this very special plant that Peter seems quite taken by. We're standing here on the eighth floor, what used to be the roof of the uh, biochemistry building, and uh, the university very kindly built me a lab here. And not only is it a lab, but it's also uh, a glasshouse, two glasshouses side by side that we access directly from the lab. And inside, it's all uh, light and greenery everywhere. We've got a whole forest of my favorite plant, Nicosiana benthamiana. 
growing here? I might just call it Benth today because yeah. it's a bit of a mouthful for the, for the novice. So why is this plant so important for scientists? Well, I may be biased, but to me it's a very special plant and actually it is special to a lot of other people. In virtually every plant biology lab around the world with people who are interested in genetics, you will find this plant growing. And what's more, you'll find just one particular isolate of this benth growing there. And the, the reason is because it's become almost like the mouse for human research, that benth is the model plant for plant research. I should mention, because if there are any Arabidopsis listeners out there uh, <laughs> listening, that Arabidopsis is perhaps the real mouse of, of plant research, but it's got a very small genome, very st stripped down, and it's fairly easy to handle. You can grow it in three months, or you can grow four cycles, if you like, per year. And it has been great, but I think the time is now that Benth is going to uh, come into its own. It's a much bigger plant, it's got a much more complex genome, and it has this amazing property that if you grow up some genes and you put them in just into a bacterium and you can squirt them directly into the leaf, that it will express those genes. And it doesn't care whether that gene came from a mouse or a petunia or a garden snail. It, it will express it if we put it in the right way. And it will do it in three days instead of sometimes it can take you three months, six months to express a gene in any other plant. Continuing the lab mouse analogy, what, what's important about this is that you know that the genes in the plant that you're working on are the same as the genes in the plant that someone on the other side of the world might be working on. So when you run your experiments, you can compare notes and know that the fundamental genetic makeup of the plants you're working on is the same. Absolutely, and I guess that's also perhaps what's special about the, the fact that it almost came from what we might call a clone. It's exactly the same benth that is grown around the world. I've been doing some work and trying to track down where it came from and when it came. And it probably left Australia before 1940 and it went to the US, and then it's been handed on from lab to lab, and now you find it in Europe, Japan, everywhere. And it's probably all from exactly the same original plant. And because this plant is what you call selfing, it doesn't cross, it actually selfs with itself to produce seed, so it is what we would call an isogenic line. It's exactly the same. It doesn't vary with time. Yeah, wow. And, and it's an Australian native. And, and absolutely, it's an Australian native. I've been doing some exploring. It's been an opportunity to go out into the wild, out into the outback, looking where it grows, because it grows in the, the most exotic and most remote places. Like, I recently went to Alice Springs and took a four-wheel drive for about 500 kilometres and then hiked for a bit to find it, growing in a tiny little place, seemingly kilometres from anywhere, and really isolated. But it is in these little isolated patches stretching from Mount Isa in Queensland all the way to the northwest Western Australia. And in fact, we have an isolate from Marble Bar, which is, I think is one of the hottest places in Australia. But they're in these little pockets. And we think that from one of these pockets, a little community, some seed was collected prior to the 1940s by someone from the Adelaide Herbarium, and then it went out from there. Do you think the extreme locations that you find the plant in, in, in sort of arid or semi-arid locations across Australia, is, is that pressure something that would have contributed to it self-replicating? Because I know that there's certain uh, lizard species that come from the Australian desert that will reproduce asexually under certain conditions. Does that play a part or am I speculating? No, I think that's absolutely right. Because some plants are obligate outbreeders and they actually want to get as much genetic variation as possible. But this is a plant that if it could not self 
self-fertilize, it, it would be dead meat, it would be gone. So it would like genetic variation when it gets the opportunity, but it has to be able to go on from generation to generation without interbreeding, if you like. And most of the time, it has kept really true to itself because of its uh, in these different pockets. And I guess that's part of our research. We're actually looking now to say how much variation is there between these different communities. This amazing ability to express these genes so that you just squirt into the leaf, this is not common. Most plants don't do this. So the question has been, well, why does this weird remote plant from Australia do this? The idea has been put forward that plants will fight off infections just like we will. If you get a virus, we'll produce antibodies to try and fight it off. That a plant doesn't have an antibody system, but it has actually a, a beautifully elegant system of small RNA, small molecules that will fight off viruses. And these small RNAs also will fight off foreign genes. So in most plants, perhaps if you were to squirt genetic material in there, that plant would say, this is a foreigner, I'm going to destroy it. But it has been suggested that because these plants grow in such remote places that there are no viruses around and so it's almost been like growing in an aseptic bubble and that it has lost this defense mechanism against viruses and that's why when we put in our genes that it's able to say oh yes I'll use this information and convert it into a protein rather than this is an invader and I'm going to kill it off. You look like you're having too much fun with your needleless <laughs> syringe at the top of the program so I think I want to have a go. So um, we just got some, some water. So which... yes, well this is just a, a mock demonstration but imagine that this was the bacteria that we'd grown it up just in a flask overnight and we put the genes in the bacteria. So now it's in your uh, syringe in your hand. Now, what you must do is, I must point you, because we've actually got here three different locations. We've got uh, Western Australia and the Queenslander and the lab strain. So we'll get you to inject the lab strain. You can either inject it into the leaf, so it goes into the whole leaf, and you can express a lot of your particular gene or the protein that you want from that. Or what you can do if you've got, say, six treatments, is you can put a spot here and a spot next to it and place it in different places on the leaf with different samples and then look at them and compare them. And they've, they're all growing on the plant the same sort of location. And you can say, Does, is A different to B or the same as so? It really uh, seems this plant has square. been set up to, as a control mechanism for, uh, for scientists. It's all, it's all very, very convenient for well, you. Well, it, it is. And, and um, it's interesting because this technique of in, injecting started off I think with people who were studying fungi and they would just in squirt in some spores of a fungus and see how it grew and killed the plant off and then I think a virologist they noticed that how easy it was these guys were squirting it in the leaf and then and then it went from there and the first demonstration of putting in genetic material was probably in the 70s or something like that. And, you, and if you look at the publication records, it's sort of, say in the 70s, there were maybe one or two publications using Nicosiana benthamiana, and then by the 75, there's maybe 20, and then, and then by the, the 90s, it's in the hundreds, and now it's in the thousands. It's like this exponential curve of people using this model plant in their system. So you can see that it's really over the last... 30 years that uh, it's just accelerated at an exponential rate and, and I should say that now that we've sequenced the genome because I guess that was what this was all about is that we expect it to be used even more so because we'll have the instruction manual on how to use the plant properly. 
right, let me have a go. If you hold yeah, the leaf. I'll hold the leaf. Okay. And so you want to aim to hit my finger there so it's... No, 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 no. Oh, so it's... what you've got to do <laughs> is uh, let me guide you. So you hold that and you you put it in so you can feel the pressure so that, and then you squirt it. There you ah, go. Ah, there we go. And so if you... It just, takes it up like litmus paper almost. It's... Uh, so you can see that most of it, <laughs> if you're skilled, most of it, you don't push the syringe through the, through the leaf. You have just the right pressure. And so it goes like that. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, it doesn't, You've done it well there. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like I'm going to be coming and doing a PhD in your lab. No, uh, no, no invitations for, for some research. I'm, I'm sure you could develop this, the skill. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're getting better by the minute. That's, that's <laughs> perfect. So you can see it. Uh, and you can go to any leaf on the plant. It's, it's, I don't know, 10 leaves on a plant, and it's very easy to grow. Brilliant. And um, uh, it's just a beautiful tool. You're listening to Off Track on RN with me, Joel Werner. And today, Professor Peter Waterhouse is teaching us all about one of his favourite plants, Nicotiana benthamiana, something of a wonder plant when it comes to genetic science. But humble beginnings for this amazing plant, it's a relative of the potato, no less. Yes, that's right. So, uh, so benth is a relative of tomatoes, potatoes, a whole range of different very valuable plants in that solanaceous family. Uh, and including ornamentals. So you notice that the flowers are quite pretty and quite smelly, that there are members of the Solanaceous family that you can get in the, in the nurseries that are just because of their flowers and their fragrances. And as the name suggests, there's also uh, nicotine in the, in the and, plant. And there's, def- and there's nicotine in the plant too, <laughs> so, which can be good and bad. And in fact, has been used in the past by Aboriginals to help them walk long distances. It's said that if you chew on uh, Nicosiana benthamiana leaves, you can walk for 100 kilometres without water or food. And it's also said that the Burke and Wills, when they were coming back down from the Gulf of Carpentaria, having got there and almost run out of food, that they were uh, met by some Aboriginals who gave them, I think they gave them some bread and some fish to eat, and they also gave them, the, the story goes, Nicosiana benthamiana to chew. Well, I'm sure it wasn't said Nicosiana benthamiana, but this, <laughs> it's called in the Aboriginal language, I think it's pituri is what it's described as, and that, and uh, say, if you chew it, it, it allows you to keep going when uh, it's like the gels you have for marathon running, it's a <laughs> sort of stimulant to keep you going. Uh, it didn't do Birkin Wells much good, mind No, you. no. They had a lot further to go than 100 kilometres, though, so. <laughs> that's true, that's true. So we've been on one side of your greenhouse so far today, but there's, there's a completely different side. Should we go and have a look at what's going on in there? Absolutely. Okay. Glass house number two. Now these plants in here are a lot younger. They're more juvenile plants than next door. They're, they're actually not much younger. Uh, again, it's a beautiful plant. And you can tell I'm biased, but, but <laughs> what we're doing here is we're growing them in very small pots. And so if you give it a small amount of soil, it won't grow very big and it will make seed. So that if you give it a lot of soil, it'll grow very large before it makes flowers and seed. But if you grow it in small pots, it goes to a smaller level and, and produces flowers and seeds. So you can actually go through cycles much faster. So this is a way in which we're just trying to grow a lot of plants in a small amount of space to go through the generations quickly. 
and we're doing that because this is actually a, a mutation screen. So what we've done is we've treated it with a, a, a chemical, a, a chemical mutagen called EMS that's actually used, I think, in mouse uh, mutagenesis screens. And that what we're trying to do here is we're trying to work out what genes do, because although I, I think I've said earlier that we know what a lot of genes do, we don't know what all of them do. And, and if you can knock one gene out and say the leaf goes curly, you can say, well, that must have been a curly leaf gene. So, so what we're doing here is we're randomly mutating, treating seed with this mutagen and then planting them out. And so we hope that every plant has got something like 10 different mutations in, in every plant. We've got maybe 500 to 1,000 plants here. So that's the sort of number of mutations that we, we've got. And some are quite striking. I mean, there's, there's these leaves are, are, are tiny. These ones are a bit yellower. There's ones over there that have curled up, that have, that have shriveled up. There are, there's, there's quite a variety of phenotype being displayed here. Yes, so some of them may be due to one gene being knocked out, some maybe several genes, and some maybe there's still a mutation in there, but it's, it's in what we call the hemizygous or heterozygous state, and so there's, you know, you have a chromosome pair, so you have one copy that's functional and one copy that's not functional, and it'll only be in the next generation that you'll see the effect of that mutation. So even though there's a lot of variation here, we actually hope that it's actually hiding even more variation underneath. We have two systems, and one is called forward genetics and one reverse genetics. One is that you may say, well, I, I have a gene and I think I know what it is and so I'll knock it out. And the other way is to do it in the opposite direction, and that is to mutate randomly and say, well, what happened with that random mutation? What is that gene? So one in a sort of a directed way and one in a, well, tell me what happened. And the great thing that we're very proud of now is that we've actually sequenced the genome of Nicosiana benthamiana, so we were able to do both forward and reverse genetic screens. And that this is a, a screen so that what we would do, because we know the sequence of a particular gene and say, well, we don't know what it really does, is that we can, we can then look in this population of plants with DNA markers to say, well, which plant in this whole population is actually mutant in that gene that we're interested in. And so then we can pull out that plant. And as I say, it's probably got 10 different mutations in there, but we can then, from the progeny of the, the next generation of, from that plant, we can sort that out and find the plant where just that gene is mutated. And then we can say, well, does it have a different oil composition? Or does it produce alkaloids that are different? Or does it have different colored flowers? And what, what really impresses me about the work you're doing here, as someone who's an advocate for open access journals, for open science in general, is that you're not greedily keeping all of this information to yourself, but you've actually set up a website where you allow colleagues in plant biology from anywhere in the world, from any other university, to access the genetic code of, of this plant. Yeah, I guess I've got to a certain point in my career where I thought, well, I'd actually like to do something for the good of everyone and so in, in a way that is the motivational force is to generate this thing to help everybody do think their science quicker and faster. We were talking about earlier about vaccines and antibodies and so on. I think it's going to be a, an amazing resource for all kinds of research, not just agricultural research but medical research and veterinary research and so on. And we'll put a link on the Off Track website. So anyone who wants to go along, scientist or, or layperson, can go and have a look at what the work you're doing. Absolutely. It's completely uh, free and open and, and, and I hope fairly easy to use. You can certainly can't find out the sequence. I don't know what you'll, how many people will know what to do with it, but, but it is all there, freely available.
So we've just come inside to your uh, your lab, and the last thing I was thinking we'd be talking about today was was a jellyfish connection to to Ben. Yes, well, this jellyfish protein, this green fluorescent protein, is an amazing protein because when you fire blue light at it or UV light at it, it will change colour, it'll, it'll emit a beautiful green or, or yellow depending on what protein it is. And so you can see things happening in, in real life. And so what I'm going to show you, we've taken a virus in this case, plant virus, and we've put in the jellyfish protein into the virus. And so we can actually see the virus moving through the plant in real time. The plant, we don't destroy it or whatever, you can actually watch it. So when I turn on this screen here, you will hopefully see. So I remember my the last time I did research biology was probably first year uni, which is too many years ago to, to recount now, but will we be staining cells to observe them under a microscope? Is this the sort of so high-tech equivalent this of This is the high-tech equivalent. Can you oh, see wow, it here? Yeah, this yeah. is the, um, here the, the leaves look purple, and that's just the chlorophyll. It's just, I'll just zoom in for you. Can you see that? The purple is now the leaf, and so if the virus wasn't there, it would be all purple. But you can see that this fluorescent green that's going in the veins is actually showing you the virus that's moving through the plant. Uh, this is, in this case, we're showing you a virus, and, and we make movies of how it moves through the plant and you see how it goes. But you can tag almost any protein you like with this fluorescent tag, and it's a, just a great technique to, to see things. And also, some genes are turned on at a certain time and off at a different time. So, for example, you can have genes that are defense genes and maybe you put a fungus on a plant and you think that that gene is responding to the fungus and going to fight it. First you tag it with the green fluorescent protein and you sit it there without a fungus and the plant looks just normal under blue light. But then you infect it with a fungus and then you can see your gene coming on in real time just in front of your eyes. And instead of having to kill the plant, you can watch it hour by hour or day by day and watch the process happen in front of your eyes. So it's quite nice because you're almost lazy. You just, once you set it up and then all you're doing is just watching it. Oh, it's great. It's the basis of science is observation and you're, you're observing changes at a, at a cellular level in real time. Yeah, and also one of the things that I think we've suffered from in the past is when we want to study a process, you would go, okay, I'm doing this and I'll take the whole leaf or the whole plant or the whole animal or whatever and grind it up and see what's going on. But what you're doing is you're looking at a whole population that's all mixed together and it may be that in certain cells something's happening very special and in other cells it's not and so it can get diluted out or some cells are doing the complete opposite to what another set of cells are doing and then when you take the whole sample they sort of cancel each other out when you look at it at that level whereas by not breaking up the cells or, or the organism you actually get to see the compartmentalization of, of how some processes are operating. And all through collaboration with the jellyfish and all through a jellyfish <laughs> all through well it's two there's the jellyfish and there's the coral there are two sorts mainly it's the green protein from jellyfish and the red protein from corals and they're they're very similar and they they fluoresce with uv or blue light and also what's nice is there's a, there's a guy called roger Thiessen who's spent quite a time and changed them just in tiny places just a few amino acids changed here and there so that you can now get it in a yellow form and you can get reds can be oranges and you can have purple they've got beautiful names like there's strawberry there's cherry there's tomato they're all, they're all describing different shades of red there's plum there's a purple color 
my favourite is, is actually Venus Yellow because she's really <laughs> bright and striking. So they come with good names too. It sounds like something I'd paint my kitchen Venus Yellow. <laughs> well, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not sure that it would look that great in the kitchen. <laughs> Maybe on a feature wall. Right, yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for letting me into your lab today and into your greenhouse and, and telling me all about Bent. It's been fascinating. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Professor Peter Waterhouse of the University of Sydney's School of Molecular Bioscience, telling us all about this wonder plant, Nicotiana benthamiana. The benth genome was recently sequenced for both DNA and RNA, research born of a collaborative effort between Waterhouse's lab at the University of Sydney, CSIRO Plant Industry and New Zealand Plant and Food Research. As mentioned earlier, all genomic data, as well as a lot of other information about the plant, is available on a special website set up by the University of Sydney. And there's a link to that site on the off-track website. Just head to abc.net.au slash radionational and search for off-track. Thanks, Joel. And if you want to hear more from Joel, you can find him at his podcast, which is all about numbers and stories, Some of All Parts. It's one of the best audio shows we've got at the ABC. It's called Some of All Parts, and it's easy to find in your podcast feed. And you'll find me, Anne Jones, right here next week with Off Track. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.